Well, I received something unusual a few weeks ago, just before Christmas. I received something through the post. It wasn't a bill. It wasn't a a tax statement or a tax demand. It wasn't a brochure from Saga about cruises. Imagine that. No, it was a letter. It was a letter. A personal handwritten letter. And it was not from someone really old. Now, normally when you receive a letter, you need to go to the end of it, don't you, to see who wrote it, to see who it's from. But in this case, this case, the sender had put his name at the top of the letter. So I knew straight away who it was from. And I might tell you later, you'll have to keep listening. Well, in the same way, in Paul's day, you began a letter by saying who it was from, the sender. Then you would say who it was to, the receiver, the recipient, and then you would follow that with a a greeting. And so in this letter of 1 Thessalonians, Paul says who it is from, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Then he says who it is to, the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gives a greeting, grace and peace to you. So Paul is using the conventional style of letter writing, which is just a wee reminder that Christians are not called to change everything they see in the world around them. There are some conventions and customs and habits and traditions that are perfectly acceptable. If there is a Christian way of writing a letter, it's not seen in the the layout of the letter or the formatting of the letter. It is seen in the content of the letter in the message that the letter conveys. And even in this first verse, with its normal layout and its normal formatting, there is a message, a word from God for us today. For in this verse, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul teaches us something about the nature, firstly the nature of mission work, secondly the nature of the church, And then thirdly, the nature of the gospel. Three things. The nature of mission work, Christian mission work, the nature of the church, and the nature of the gospel. So let's think first about the nature of mission work. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter. It has his mark all over it. But it is not just from Paul. Do you notice that? It is from Paul, Silas and Timothy. His co-workers in the gospel. His partners in the gospel. And in the mission of Jesus Christ. And if you look through this letter. All through this letter. With one or two exceptions. Paul says. He uses the first person plural. He uses we. And are and us, we always thank God. Verse 4, we know. Verse, chapter 2, verse 1, our visit to you. Verse 8, we cared for you. All throughout the letter is we, us, are. And that tells us two things. Firstly, it tells us that Paul was no lone ranger. Paul was not a lone ranger in mission work. His way of working as a missionary, his Modus operandi, if you like, was to work as part of a team. He took Barnabas with him on his first missionary journey. 
On his second missionary journey, he took Silas and recruited Timothy along the way. We need each other as partners in the mission work Christ has called us to, whether here at home or across the world. Jesus, you remember Jesus in Luke 10, verse 1, he sent out his disciples in pairs, didn't he? He didn't send them out on their own. Yes, there were times uh, there were times when Paul was alone in prison, for example, but ordinarily he worked as part of a team. And his fellow workers gave him, and they gave each other, mutual support and encouragement and fellowship. His fellow workers meant that the task The task of spreading the good news of Jesus, the task of shepherding the young churches was a task, a job that could be shared and even multiplied. Paul was no lone ranger. He did not attempt gospel work alone and neither should we. But then secondly, this tells us that Paul was no prima donna. Paul was no prima donna. Uh, I googled prima donna a day or two ago and the first thing I got was lingerie and swimwear. (laughs) But prima donna literally means, in Italian, means first lady. Prima, first donna, lady, first lady. It comes from Italian opera, doesn't it? The leading lady, the first lady, usually a soprano in an opera. And some of these first ladies, these leading ladies, these prima donnas, some of them had a reputation possibly still do have a reputation for being very demanding and having a high opinion of themselves. So today we use the phrase prima donna for any singer or celebrity or sports star who is very demanding and very full of themselves. A few examples, Beyonce, she has to have her dressing room at exactly 78 degrees Fahrenheit Exactly 78 degrees Fahrenheit, that's 25.5 degrees Celsius. Justin Bieber has to have a massage table, a massage table wherever he goes, and a private jet on standby, just in case he wants to take off somewhere. Christina Aguilera demands a police escort. Wherever she's going, she demands a police escort so that she's not held up in traffic. But you know, there can be prima donnas in the church too. Donald McLeod writes, Professor McLeod writes, that there is scarcely a month, there is hardly a month goes by that a church is not wrecked by somebody, with a capital S, somebody. That is the whole problem, he says. There is always a somebody, big S. If we were willing to be nobodies, the church would not be wrecked. That is what the church needs. Nobodies who have crucified their egos and left them on the far side of that great word of Jesus. What word of Jesus? Let a man deny himself. Let us deny. If you're going to be my disciple, Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Oh, it's very striking, isn't it? Paul did not set up an organization and call it Paul of Tarsus Ministries. He did not plant churches and call them Paul of Tarsus Apostolic Churches. No. As an apostle of Christ, 
Paul followed the way of Christ, the way of the crucified eagle, the way of the cross. Paul is no prima donna. And in the work of the church's mission, there is no room for prima donnas. And there should be no need, ordinarily there should be no need for lone rangers. The nature of the mission, the mission work. Well then secondly, the nature of the church, this opening verse uh, tells us something about the nature of the church. Going back to this letter that I received uh, just before Christmas, it actually ends by saying this. Really hope you and the good folks in the church in Highland International Church know God's richest blessings over Christmas and into the new year. So that's a message for the church, not just for me. And I hope they don't mind me saying it. It's from Stuart and Tunyon at Mackay, now in England. So this letter, although it was addressed to me, included a message for the whole church. And if you didn't get it in time before Christmas, I'm sorry, but uh, you can take it for next Christmas. And this letter here, isn't it? It's addressed to the church of the Thessalonians. To the church of the Thessalonians. And we know, if you turn to the end of the letter, to chapter 5, verse 27, you will see that this letter was to be read out, what does it say? To all the brothers and sisters, to the whole church. And we can see three things about the nature of the church from this. Three subheadings here about the nature of the church. Firstly, it is made up of people, of brothers and sisters. It's not made of bricks and mortar. And you might say, well, that truth is obvious. Nearly everybody knows that within the church. And that's true. If you say to people, what is the church? Most people will say it is the people. And yet, and yet, and yet, how often, how often do the bricks and mortar seem to be more important than people? How often do you hear appeals appeals for a building to be kept open even when the people of God have gone and the Spirit of Christ has departed? All buildings have their uses. Of course they do. We could do with one ourselves. Of course they have their uses and they have their historic value and aesthetic value, of course. But the church, when the Bible uses the word church, it is not a building. It is people. I remember as a boy growing up in, in Northern Ireland how the older generation, long gone, but the older generation would refer to the local church building. And it was a Presbyterian church, not a, not a Brethren Hall or a Gospel Hall. It was the local Presbyterian church. They would call it, in the Ulster Scots dialect, they would call it the Meeting House. The Meeting House. The Meeting House. The church building was the meeting house where the real church, it was where the church met. It was a meeting house. The church is not a building but people, and it is to people that Paul writes this letter. Secondly, the church is a gathered people. It is a gathering of the people of God. Because the word that Paul uses for church here and the word that Jesus uses and that's used throughout the New Testament, ecclesia, means assembly or gathering or congregation. It means assembly, gathering, congregation. And so Paul is writing to the assembly of believers who met together in this particular city of Thessalonica. 
And the truth is, whether you like it or not, you cannot, you cannot be a lone Christian. It's that point again, just about uh, mission work, that we're not called to be lone rangers in mission work. You cannot, you cannot be a member of a church alone, as it were. The church is you and me gathered together, assembled together, brought together by the grace of God into the family of God. It is a gathering of God's people. Not just people, isolated individuals, but an assembly of people. And that's why it's so odd for us to be sitting at our separate screens. Because it is odd. And don't get used to it. Even as you're sitting there in your pyjamas with your cup of coffee, don't get used to it. We are meant, where possible, to gather together in person. Because that is what the church is. It is a gathering together in the flesh. In the name of the one who came to us, not via Zoom or YouTube, but in the flesh. So while we are grateful to God for the technology that allows us to gather virtually, we look forward and long for the day when the body of Christ will be able to gather as the body of Christ, not disjointed. As the assembly of God's people gather together in the name of God's Son. The nature of the church, it is people, it is people who are gathered in the assembly of God's people. And then thirdly, the church's existence and security is rooted in God himself. Do you see that? Do you remember what the Bereans did? They examined the scriptures to see if what Paul had said was true. Look at what it says. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's true, isn't it, that today we face many questions about our security. Uh, there's the matter of online security. Do you remember all your passwords? Well, I know I don't. There's concerns about online security. There's concerns nationally, security against terrorist attacks. There's a question, who would believe it, of food security post-Brexit. There are empty shelves in the shops in Northern Ireland. We'll soon have to send a food parcel back to my family. There's concerns over political security in the USA and in Uganda and in other countries. And there's deep, deep concern over job security, financial security and how secure our health is in this time of COVID-19. Now, the Thessalonian Christians had their own concerns about security. For two reasons, I think. Firstly, because of the opposition that they faced from those around them. They were under attack, just as Paul himself had been when he was with them. They were under pressure from every side, from Jew and from Gentile. For those of us who are in the West, we find that hard to imagine what that is like. But when I was minister in Side Hill in Glasgow, we had quite a lot of asylum seeker families who were part of the church there. And many stories of what it was like to face discrimination and attack on a regular basis. I think of a family from Rawalpindi in Pakistan uh, running a, 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 a successful and medium-sized business in that city. How would you feel if you knew that every Friday the local imam in the mosque would be 
pointing your name out and your address out and your house out for attack, for stoning and for burning. So they had this, they had this concern in Thessalonica about being opposed by the, the Greeks who predominantly worshipped the Greek gods and the Roman gods. And yes, there were Egyptian worship as well in Thessalonica at that time. And also from the, the Jews who did not accept Jesus as the Messiah. But they had another question about security. Their second concern was about the, the security of their fellow Christians who had died who had died before Jesus returned. What had happened to them? Now Paul will go on to address that concern specifically later in the letter. But right here at the start of this letter, do you see what Paul is doing? He is reminding them, he is teaching them as Christians, that they are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They are in God. They are secure in God, the God who loves them and cares for them like the Father of mercies that he is. They are in the Lord Jesus Christ, secure in the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, who is the Lord, who is the Christ, the one to whom all the nations belong as his inheritance, the one who loved them and gave himself for them. This is the God they are in. And we too are in if we are Christian. Friends, there, there is no safer place to be than in God. There is no safer place to be whatever threatens our security. There is no safer place to be whenever the shadow of death falls across our door. Do you notice from this verse that to be in God the Father is to be in the Lord Jesus Christ? There is only one in in the original. Both in the English translation here and the original language, it's in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is simply assuming and affirming the divinity of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, the godness of Jesus. To be in God the Father means to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself taught the same, didn't he, in John's Gospel. John chapter 10, that great chapter about Jesus being the good shepherd. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Sharing the one divine nature. People today... Uh, some people will say, Jehovah's Witnesses, and all of us say, well, Jesus was just saying that he and the Father were of one mind, one purpose. But <laughs> that's not what Jesus meant. And the Jews who were around Jesus at that time knew that he was claiming to be equal to the Father because they picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy. No, Jesus says, I and the Father are one, sharing the one divine nature. And later on in verse 38, he will say, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. You can't separate us. Yes, we are distinct persons within the Godhead, but there is one God. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. But look at the context in which Jesus teaches us that in John 10. Look at the context. John 10, verse 27 to 30. My sheep, says Jesus, listen to my voice. 
I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Do you see what Jesus is saying? The sheep are secure. The sheep are safe. My hands, says Jesus, and my Father's hands are around you. I and the Father are one. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. This is the nature of the church. The gathered people of God saved and kept safe in Christ, in God. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've seen something then of the nature of mission work. There's no uh, room for lone rangers and uh, no room for prima donnas. There should be no need for lone rangers. And the nature of the church is people. It's a gathered people of God. And it's people whose existence and security is in God the Father and in Christ Jesus. And then lastly and briefly, we see from this opening verse something about the nature of the gospel. The nature of the gospel. It is summed up in Paul's greeting. Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. You know, I said earlier there's no need for Christians to change every tradition and custom. Some of them can be adopted quite happily. And Paul in the layout and formatting of this letter does just use the normal format and layout. But even here, he changes He uses the format and brings a message. He uses the traditional Jewish greeting of peace, shalom. And he tweaks, he tweaks the normal Greek greeting, which was a word like Cairo. And he changes it to charis, to grace. To say grace and peace to you. And even in this simple greeting, which he uses in every one of his 13 letters. Grace and peace. There's only one of the 13 where he says grace, mercy and peace. One of the letters to Timothy, I think. All of them have grace and peace as his greeting. All 13 of them. And he's reminding us with this greeting of the gospel. That we are saved by the grace of God to have peace with God. We are saved by the grace of God to have peace with God. And you see, this is, this is a blessing. This is a benediction right at the start. This is the blessing of the gospel. The benediction of the gospel. It is grace, which is God's undeserved kindness to sinners like you and me. It is peace, which is God's gift of shalom, wholeness and wellness and salvation through Christ and the cross of Christ to sinners like you and me. And what is striking is that Paul doesn't just begin his letters with this benediction of grace. He ends them with a benediction of grace as well. Turn over to the very last verse of this letter, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 28. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amazing grace. Saving grace, 
preserving grace. Have you known this work of grace? Have you known the grace of God at work in your life? Are you in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that where your faith and your hope and your love lie? For as we shall see as this letter develops, that is our only hope in life and in eternity is to be rooted in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ by his amazing grace, his saving grace, his preserving grace in the Lord Jesus. Well, what a letter, uh, what a letter to receive. What, I mean, what a blessing. What a blessing to receive a letter book-ended at either end with the benediction, the blessing of grace. And may each of our lives, may each of our lives be book-ended with the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So that when people read us, when people read the letter of our lives, they will read a story begun and ended in grace. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that we discover in Christ and through Christ that he himself is our peace. And Father, we thank you for that peace that was won for us by his death on the cross. We thank you, Father, that the gospel is a, a work of mercy and reconciliation. We thank you, Father, that when we become a Christian, we are immediately part of the church, part of the body of Christ. That we are part of a gathered people. And we thank you, Father, that our security ultimately does not lie in anything in this world, whether it be a, a vaccine or a new leader. But in you, our Father, and in Christ himself. Oh, Father, we thank you for the blessing of your grace. May we go from this time, this act of worship, knowing your presence with us, knowing that you are the shepherd who loves us, who has promised to keep us. You have said that we will never perish, that your hands, Lord Jesus, and the Father's hands are around us, and that no one and nothing can snatch us out of those strong and loving hands. Amen. Thank you.